Welcome to the first episode of the Monocle Banking Podcast for 2024. I certainly hope it's a fruitful year for you. Uh, it feels like uh, we've hit the ground running and this old uh, V8 engine is trying to turn into an EV as uh, I get myself ready for what is hopefully a year of, uh, of change and positive change in South Africa and indeed around the world. I'm your host, Michael Avery, and today we've got a special edition tucking into a groundbreaking initiative that is reshaping uh, South Africa's um, energy landscape and also our nationally determined uh, commitments to decarbonize the South African economy. And we've made some pretty audacious, hairy uh, goals um, are lodestars in that regard. Uh, we're at a very early and evolving stage of what is called the just energy transition, the JET, and there are no doubt complex challenges to overcome. Project preparation isn't where it needs to be. A uh, few of the concessional loan pledges that were made to the JET IP have become financing agreements. So new climate funds are not yet flowing at scale into targeted projects. And there's obviously much that needs to be done to build institutional capability for efficient and cost-effective execution. And all of this happens while there has been some muttering around the decommissioning of Kamati Power Station in Mpumalanga back in 2022. And uh, I'm really looking forward to tucking into this. This is probably going to be the first of a series of podcasts that we do on this topic because uh, it is just simply so vast. Well, I'm really thrilled to be joined uh, to kick us off uh, by one of the lead authors um, of the, the JET Implementation Plan. It's a visionary document paving the way for South Africa's journey towards a low-carbon and climate-resilient economy. And uh, there was another very interesting report published in December in draft form about scaling finance to support a just transition, because this is an opportunity, but it is going to require um, vast sums of capital to be invested in order to um, see these goals come to fruition. Dipak Patel from the, the Presidential Climate Commission of South Africa, uh, he joined the, the PCC in June 2021 as Head of Climate Finance and Innovation, and he really leads the team in its work in the areas of climate finance mapping, financing a just transition, and developing a strategy for financing the pathway to a net zero emissions target for 2050. And just uh, a bit more background, the PCC was established and is co-chaired by uh, South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa. But Dipak, I'll let you tell us a little bit more about uh, the work of the PCC as well. Uh, as a chemical engineer and uh, a qualified artisanal brewer as well, you've certainly got vast interests. You've got an MSc in Development Economics from the University of London. Um, I hope you do, given the scandal currently around uh, qualifications uh, and an MBA from the University of Witt. Uh Thanks so much for joining us on the show. How are you doing? Very, very well. Thank you, Michael. Um, it's been, as you say, a rapid start to the new year. And let me use this opportunity to wish you and your family well during the course of 2024 as well. And to the listeners, I hope that 2024 is going to see the resolution of many of the crises that we are seeing both in South Africa, on the continent, and of course, as we're fully aware, around the world. Let me straight off say that I was not singularly the author of the Just Energy Transition Investment Plan, just by way of quick background so that I'm not accused of falsely laying claim. Oh, sure. Um, I did say one of. Yes. <laughs> um, we can cover the genesis of the jet all the way back to Glasgow at COP26, and we can talk about as well what the foundational elements 
of the just energy transition, as well as the JETP, which is the Just Energy Transition Partnership, which includes at that time five entities, including um, developed countries, but also a particularly large MDB. And then more laterally, as the plan took shape, um, joined by others. So, Michael, with those words, let me also say that you've sketched a broad swathe of the critical challenges, which um, cut to the heart, I think, not only of our global responsibility, which we've adopted, by the way, through a submission of our nationally determined contributions in 2021, setting the stage for ambition as it relates to decarbonization, but then quickly supporting that with at least a political economic view of how to achieve that. And then finally, you've sketched some of the challenges as well in the context of energy scarcity, energy insecurity accompanied by load shedding. What is the rate at which South Africa can afford to close down its existing coal-fired power stations? A large number of challenges, but in all of this, through those challenges and through the risks that we face, I think what the JET does is makes an early foundational statement of what South Africa can do to achieve a platform from which to take advantage of our position, our capabilities, as well as make good our global contribution to decarbonization. A very complex undertaking mm. indeed that will require everyone, not just the state, to get its act together and prepare to successfully implement it. Dipak, thanks for that. And maybe for the listeners, it's good to establish a, a, a base as to who is driving the process of the just energy transition, because we've got the Presidential Climate Commission, we've got various uh, government departments, we've got um, the NBI, the National Business Initiative, and I know jo- Joanne Yar, which has now moved across to work uh, more closely with the PCC. Uh, so how does that architecture come together and where do the roles and responsibilities ultimately reside? Um, Michael, in the initial period, I think we adopted a situational approach to the challenge at hand. Mm. Um, As we know, different mandates sit in different parts of government, not only different at the level of national government, but also challenging and different in terms of capability and scope to implement space for financial capability. The Presidential Climate Commission's genesis, interestingly, was in 2018 at the Presidential Job Summit. And it was at that point, again, something not very well known, that labor, organized labor in South Africa, seeing that the climate transition and climate response was inevitable, whatever the pace was at which we unfolded it, and therefore raised the issue of a social partner um, mechanism to ensure that as we undertake the transition, we, in essence, left no one behind. And so it was out of that that the Presidential Climate Commission was created. So the Presidential Climate Commission, chaired by the President, Deputy Chair is Vali Musa, who in the first term of democratic government was Minister of Environmental Affairs. Quite interestingly enough, commissioners then drawn, not on the basis of elections or anything, but on the basis that they came from many sectors and included, amongst others, um, civil society, business, labor through its organized formations, young people, as well as academics and scientists who were involved in climate issues. 
That secretariat that was formed on the back of the commissions being appointed was then um, led by Crispian Olver, who also, interestingly enough, was the Democratic era's first director general for environmental affairs. And so what we see is a coming together of all facets that would be absolutely crucial to work in harmony and to the extent possible with consensus towards what a transition would look like. Very early on, the Presidential Climate Commission harnessed all of the modeling that had been done in various institutions and by the business sector into advising government with respect to what a realistic but nonetheless ambitious um, nationally determined contributions would be. And so in 2021, we saw the PCC recommending to government what its submission to the United Nations Framework Convention for Climate Change, the UNFCCC, would be. And it's on the back of that that we believe, leading up to COP26 in 2021, where we all know that the developed world had failed to live up to its promised $100 billion per year as its contribution to decarbonization in developing countries, led, I believe, to the partnership that was forged in the form of the Just Energy Transition Partnership. Once that partnership was formed, supported by a political declaration which enunciated three sectors that would see a deep decarbonization to 2030, we then had to do the hard work of negotiating the financial package, at that time $8.5 billion. And then on the basis of that promise, I think we, South Africa, took a bold step and said, listen, $8.5 billion, we know intuitively, is not going to take us very far. Let's develop a just energy transition investment plan. And it was that hard work led by the JETP Secretariat, ably led at that time by Joanne Yawich, and reporting into the International Partners Group on the one hand, and the Presidential Climate Finance Task Team, which was led at that time by Daniel Minella, I served on it. We then developed the JET Investment Plan, which was adopted by Cabinet. And it is that JET Investment Plan that quantified to the year 2030 a need for the deep and fundamental transformation of our electricity sector towards renewables and greener energy sources, but it also saw the opportunities that arose in green hydrogen. And finally, we saw the writing on the wall with respect to the developed world phasing out internal combustion engine vehicles and understanding what an important role the auto manufacturing and assembly sector in South Africa plays right now, after many years of being assisted, either through the fiscus or through incentives for its development to this current stage, we saw what the risks were for the auto sector. And therefore, of imperative importance was the introduction of some conversation, at least, to what would South Africa's role be in a continued competitiveness in the global motor sector if we are to transform the current manufacturing and assembly capabilities towards um, new energy or more particularly electric vehicles. So that was the foundational thinking that then laid the basis for what are the three critical sectors to 2030 at least that we need to pay attention to 
as we decarbonize our energy system and ensure that we take advantage of some of our current competitiveness as well as look to the future with respect to nascent opportunities that we foresee arising, not only for domestic consumption production, but also for domestic production that could lend itself to an export industry. And on that note, um, the the narrowing down of the focus, I think, is something that is to be welcomed because often with these things, they can come across as more of an aspirational wish list than a pragmatic roadmap if, if, if one is too broad and too all-encompassing. And I think the way first situationally uh, that the plan was conceptualized, but then institutionalized and now with the focus being narrowed down, we are getting to a point where we have something that is far more tangible. Uh, We've got a very ambitious funding target of around one and a half trillion rand, I believe, over five years. Uh, So talk to me about those three sectors and where you see Firstly, the big opportunities, and then secondly, the challenges that have to be overcome in order to unlock those. Sure. And uh, you make an important observation at a more general level, Michael, and that is, you know, ambition always carries the risk of either inability to implement um, wholly, or we hope the risk that some parts of it may be difficult or not possible to implement. In the way in which we conceptualize this, For the three sectors, I think um, there is room for different degrees of success and which different degrees of success do not result then in such a statement of ambition having been presented that we throw the baby out with the bathwater. So in each one of those sectors, there are some critical milestones or a critical path made up of milestones that need to be achieved. But in partnership, And given South Africa's mixed economy nature, as well as the state of development of both our industry in terms of manufacturing, engineering, as well as technology capability on the one hand. And secondly, the depth and scale of our domestic capital and financial markets, even in the context of the fiscal constraints that we face, lead us at least who are optimists and I would say pragmatists to believe that these three pathways, if we were to rapidly unfold them, implement them to the best of our ability in partnership with all those who have the capabilities to do their bit, then I believe that by 2030, we could have laid a solid platform where rather than being takers of global regulation or global risk um, elements that start to present themselves in the form of of carbon border adjustment mechanisms that we would have at least have laid a basis to be able to successfully compete and fend off some of the dire risks that present themselves. So if you would like, I'd be happy to go through each one of those three, the energy sector, new energy vehicles, and green hydrogen very briefly to discuss. Okay, so if we start with electricity, which um, literally is um, 85 to 87% of the jet IP. Here, what we are seeing is firstly that almost 90% of our current electricity is produced by ESCOM's power station fleet, um, which in turn is largely coal-fired, except for Kuburg, which is two units of um, nuclear energy. What we are also seeing is that ESCOM 
has not invested except for Madupi and Kusile, which themselves have their issues, which we can unpack perhaps in a later podcast because they are material. We are seeing that the average age of ESCOM's power station fleet is approaching 40 years. Yeah. And what this means with the lifespan, expected economic lifespan of 50 years per power station is a critical decisioning point around whether we simply let power stations come to the end of their natural economic life and then gracefully shut them down, or as some posit, and that again, in the future podcast we can unpack, there is um, a split view, even within government, with respect to this question of extending the life of coal-fired power stations. But we sit in a, in my opinion anyway, a relatively sweet spot where if we were to be able to harness degrees of grant, concessional, donor financing to shut down power stations as they approach end of life, maybe a few years earlier, then what we have is the financial feasibility of shutting them down gracefully, but in the process also the challenge of having to bring into the mix renewable energy and greener energy sourced electricity into that mix. And here again, you will know that the IRP recently released for public comment, do make some statements about a continuation of coal, do make some statements about a pace of um, renewable energy that not everybody might agree with. And the PCC certainly is going to weigh in as constructively as we can with our alternative views, where we do have alternative views. Having said that, there are some, what I would call, Um, no regret moves that should be compatible with all potential energy mix scenarios. And those relate to, firstly, the state of our national grid, both in terms of a need to extend it as well as a need to strengthen it. Secondly, creating the conditions for a rapid increase, acceleration of renewable energy projects funded in large part now that we've de-risked through the REIPP program um, by the private sector. And thirdly, it raises the issue of how within our existing operating power fleet, we begin to get our energy availability factors up, which um, rely on firstly, effective and efficient production management of energy, for the operating power stations and as we all know the challenge of trying to eke back or claw back on the lost years of um, poor maintenance if we get a harmony between all of these elements and in in the course of doing that start also pulling back load shedding from higher stages to lower stages and hopefully eventually ending it over the next couple of years we believe that we can mobilize both the financial resources that are necessary, but also in the process of clear signaling, send the right messages to both the private and the public sector with respect to project preparation, with respect to risk measurement, and with respect to both domestic and international investors finding attractive locations for their decisions with respect to investment. And so in the, in the electricity sector, we see firstly finding the means by which the grid can be extended and strengthened. And that has both financial as well as planning investment, as well as project and logistics um, challenges. Secondly, renewable energy, we believe 
that we need to up the ante and really accelerate the pace at which private sector-led renewable energy projects come on the ground. Within that, there are a set of complexities which we could unpack. And then finally, as I said, to begin to get greater levels of efficiency and operational management competence mm. into operating our existing fleet. On the, so that's electricity. So on that point, on the, the, the grid issue, I think uh, it's an important point you, you make that despite uh, the contestation around the various pathways um, and and energy mixes. I think everyone can agree that uh, the grid needs to be expanded in certain areas and, uh, and particularly around provinces that have huge potential for adding additional renewable resources in solar and wind. See this playing out uh, because it almost feels a bit chicken and egg. Does it happen in parallel that you uh, start bidding for particular uh, renewable projects alongside um, building out and expanding grid capacity in the Northern Cape, for example. How do you envision this taking place? So that's a very interesting issue that requires, firstly, coherent modeling. Secondly, as much as there might be a theoretical approach that says we need to progress linearly, I believe that we need to progress um, in parallel and creatively. Mm. And in respect of the grid, the creation of the South African grid company, I think it's called the National South African Transmission Company, is the first step, which both the JET IP, as well as the PCC, as well as um, government, I think, have agreed is a necessary step. And within this is a set of questions that get raised that require, for want of a better word, social consensus. Um, there is a fear on the part of um, unions, organized labor, that the creation of the grid company, as well as an argument that says we need to find private sector participation models for the grid expansion and grid upgrade, um, amounts to privatization. I do not believe that. We have experience of, of quite creative financing arrangements and project arrangements in South Africa, whether we're talking about the toll roads, whether we're talking about some of our build, operate, transfer approaches to infrastructure in South Africa, those all can remain under the ownership of the grid company, but conditions created where you, I was going to say entice, but really encourage and yeah. attract the private sector to come in in various ways. And so I think a current debate that will unfold in the early part of this year is given that there's a consensus across the board that the grid needs to be strengthened and expanded, what are the creative modalities through which in the absence of fiscal resources, in the absence of ESCOM's balance sheet itself being able to support this, how does a solvent, reasonably healthy balance sheet of the South African transmission company support the leveraging of private sector capital into these projects? But more importantly, I think the private sector has also displayed, whether we're talking about through renewable energy projects or whether we're talking about the actual engineering and implementation function, which is outsourced and subcontracted by ESCOM as we speak now, how do we encourage that sector to prepare for its own transformation, to come into its own, to not just be engineering service providers, but in fact, fully-fledged operators as well as maintenance and potentially for 15, 20 years yeah. um, have the wherewithal 
to put in place really complex but nonetheless doable concession type of arrangements where you pass on the risk for an appropriate type of reward and um, let those parts of South African society and economy do what they are best geared to do. So I think um, by about mid-year, we'll have some degree of um, understanding and consensus about at least for the grid where the private sector could possibly come in. Other creative approaches include what we call um, load balancing, and that is encourage the private sector to overbuild renewables deliberately at the very beginning while the grid gets strengthened to catch up over a period of time. So, you know, the mismatch in time to implement is that a renewable energy in the form of a solar PV plant and a solar PV field um, is between two years and two and a half years. Yeah. Whereas a grid program on, on, on average would be between five and seven years. How do you put in place the guarantee mechanisms, the assurances that are required for overbuild of renewable, which might be a little inefficient because we're not utilizing it completely for the first two or three years. But once the grid catches up, you can ramp up production and in fact bring it to bear. So there are those creative approaches which, while they might cost a little more initially, really set the stage um, for a ramping up in the outer years in this 2023 to 2030 set of scenarios. Very interesting, Dipak. And uh, just before we move on to the other two sectors, new energy vehicles and green hydrogen, uh, one more question. It does seem to be one of the more burning questions around uh, some of the socioeconomic, maybe more political challenges in bringing those affected communities um, along and persuading them that uh, these things, while difficult, change is always difficult and uncomfortable, are necessary. And uh, that's why it's so encouraging to hear that Labour is playing such an important role here. It was most recently revealed around the Kamati uh, decommissioning that the community in the, in the surrounding area perhaps weren't consulted as comprehensively as uh, as would have been hoped for, and and so there does seem to be some discontent. How does the the PCC plan to address the the deep seated concerns within Mpumalanga communities regarding job losses resulting from coal fired power plant and coal mine closures, especially in light of some scepticism that's been expressed by uh, the attendees at a recent workshop in Ermelo. It does seem like there is big opportunity, but that potentially the story, the narrative is not being communicated effectively to those uh, affected communities. Spot spot on, Michael. You know, the, the, the initial part of our conversation dealt around engineering challenges, modeling challenges, financial challenges, all the technical aspects. What we understand as the PCC, especially since we had the Just Transition Framework adopted in 2022 by Cabinet, is that we have to articulate between empirical evidence, science, academics, engineering, etc. on the one hand, and social partnering on the other hand. Because while they might appear to be two very different spheres of um, reality, unless we get the articulation right, between people on the one hand and technology and processes on the other hand, we will fail to implement. So very interestingly enough, Komati was shut down its last unit in October, November 2022. And that then started a period of preparing 
for what we call a repurposing and repowering of that power station by ESCOM. And as we went to the ground to talk about just transition and what it means for communities, the PCC itself realized that there was discontent, that there were weaknesses, gaps, perhaps even dire omissions in the way in which planning led to decisions, led to implementation. Mm. And so it was the PCC itself that early on last year started raising the issue, if we were to do this on scale and if we were to do this on a consistent basis as we came to the end of life of the ESCOM fleet of power stations, what are the lessons to be learned from Komati? And um, I put it to the Secretariat of the PCC that we absolutely of necessity need to claw back on the omissions, on the failures, and on the oversights that um, accompanied the Komati decision-making. And so the PCC itself went to Komati twice last year, first on a fact-finding mission on an objective basis, and secondly, towards the latter part of last year, to go back to the community to share what our views and findings were. And then we prepared and presented to the president a report called Kumati. It's on the basis of that report that we will now proceed as the PCC to also inform the processes through which, and you raised this in an earlier exchange with me, is this just transition concept, you know, just a statement of principle that is sitting somewhere in the ether? No. What we're finding is that um, Komati is a living, breathing platform from which we need to test the hypothesis that there needs to be all three elements of justice as contained in the just transition if we are to technically, scientifically, and project-wise implement this transition successfully. So in the case of Komati, we are now stepping back a little bit. We are ensuring that we facilitate the setting up of community um, structures that can make the community an essential part of the process going forward. But importantly, we have engaged with ESCOM who have now admitted that because of the constrained manner in which they themselves operate as an engineering and operating institution, they should have and did not cast their site and net wider as it relates to the transition that Komati as a local area needs to undergo. And so those conversations are taking place. The president accepted um, our report um, with gratitude. And in Komati, what we will do in the coming year is prove the concept that the just transition is indeed feasible together with a rollout of not just shutting down um, coal-fired power stations, but in fact utilizing that as an opportunity to repurpose and repower them and thereby protect and preserve, although differently skilled, some jobs in that vicinity, but much more importantly, as a partnership between national, provincial, and local government, develop local economic development plans and maximize mm. the input of um, especially grant and concessional capital that might be available behind the mega projects, which we believe through development finance and private financing, as well as ESCOM's balance sheet, can be afforded on a viable basis. And on that point, it's going to be critical if you're going to be developing a project 
to have clear definitions in order to access um, the funding that is available through not only the JetIP, but there are vast sums of capital available globally for uh, for projects of this nature. And so the, the plan speaks of a, a jet project register and funding platform. Uh, so maybe you can just talk me through how that's going to work in order to ensure that um, you, you know project developers can at least align with what it is uh, funders are looking for in order to unblock uh, capital and ensure that it flows into the right areas where it's so desperately needed. Absolutely right. What raised um, the need for a project register was in fact the differentiated nature of finance being offered by each partner in the international partners group. We had early on argued that there needs to be coherence to the funding. Unfortunately, the funds that have been pledged, some of it has flown, some of it still to flow, were premised on there being grant, deeply concessional, concessional, and then leveraged um, either development finance or private sector finance. And what this meant was that, to the point that you're making, Different projects have different characteristics and therefore a need for different mixes of capital. The international community have their own development institutions, some of which have had long histories in South Africa. So, for example, the Germans have both KFW as well as GIZ on the development side. The French have the ADB and the U.S. has their development corporation And um, to various degrees, these are governed in their own governance structures, as well as within their own national jurisdictions. And they all have developed their own sense of where grant capital should flow. Should it be technical assistance? Should it be grant tranches leveraging other sectors, including private sector in financing? And so this mix proved to be very onerous. Mm. And the need for this project register arose in the first instance because we wanted to really understand what the quantum and nature of the grant component of this offer was. And we did not want a situation where everybody decided to jump into different parts of South Africa and do their own thing as it relates to what they believed to be just transition projects. And so the project register in the first instance was necessitated by an understanding of the grant component and the deeply concessional components of the monies that each one of the members of the IPG were pledging. Secondly, as the JET implementation plan evolved and now adopted by Cabinet in November last year, it more fully enunciated what individual projects or programs would look like within the three sectors that we've already talked about. And so what is emerging now is a very clear enunciation of critical paths as well as secondary pathways through the project plans or project pathways for each of these three sectors. And we now see a need to ensure that if nothing else, we have a clear enunciation of those projects so that even if government itself is not leading or coordinating those, government in a visible and publicly shared way has a sense of what the progress along various project pathways would look like. Now, without getting into very granular detail, let me say that any register needs to be robust. 
And for this reason, it is not just a simple um, listing of projects. What it will do is list projects by way of project pathways. And that then means that each of those projects or combination of projects into programs would need to understand what the sources of capital are, what are the activities within that project, who are the implementing institutions, which, by the way, has not yet been decided. And I personally think that each project or program should have its own unique, properly enunciated implementation partnership model. And then, of course, the issues with respect to Forex, issues with respect to is this in local currency or global currency? What is the duration of the project? Dates, start dates, project progress dates. Um, who are the parties to whatever agreements might be in place with respect to specific projects or programs. And this database or this set of fields is now being more clearly enunciated to give us a database that is useful rather than just a shopping list of mm -hmm. what each project look like. And and, th and through doing that, uh, identifying those um, financial needs and challenges, uh, you've then proposed the solution of the just transition financing mechanism and the uh, the institutional framework that you put forward is incubating that uh, JTFM within an existing PFMA entity such as the Development Bank of Southern Africa. Just take me through that JTFM and why you consider that probably the strongest institutional option that we have and uh, what potential advantages and also potential challenges might come with this approach. Uh, because while we do um, certainly know the PFMA is worthwhile in terms of preventing corruption and things like that, it has also been critiqued for making decision-making overly onerous and mendacious and bureaucratic and slow. And and really, we do need to be moving with some speed, Taps. Sure. Um, and Michael, this is where perhaps we created a little bit of confusion between us or as a result of having different time perspectives um, on a just transition financing mechanism. So let me clarify upfront. The JET investment plan and now the implementation plan makes um, recommendations for the creation of what is called a JET funding platform in the first instance, at least for the next short term up to 27-28, while the PCC looking forward to what is needed to scale up so that we can accelerate to 2050 is really thinking about what the institutional and financing arrangements should be for the entirety of the just transition. Ah. So let me say that the reference to the DBSA is an emerging proposal by the PCC for the medium to long term. But having said that this will be developed around a DBSA set of capabilities, we are still debating whether it is within the DBSA or leveraging the capabilities of the DBSA for a different slightly arm's length institution that also encompasses, at least in the advisory board, players from the private sector, both sectoral as it relates to industry, as well as financing as it relates to both the banking system, as well as the investment and asset management system. Of necessity, if we are to attract foreign capital, then we're also looking at who would be adequately able to represent foreign capital in a way that gives comfort 
that both institutional and governance rigor is accompanying this bid. So let me say that the implementation plan for the JET sees at this point in time a slightly more flexible arrangement where they're looking at who are the potential sources, particularly of grant funding. Secondly, where are um, the beneficiaries for just transition projects, particularly not necessarily big engineering and infrastructure type of projects? And what would then be a softer mechanism of matchmaking so that we get a degree of alignment, coordination, if possible, and coherence? in the very limited tranches of grant that are available to maximize the impact by matchmaking carefully with projects that are identified as being just transition. Let me pause here and say, you know, the needs of South Africa, given our degrees of unemployment, given our economic growth rate, given the extent to which the social needs by far outweigh yeah. um, the availability of resources, without wanting to prescribe anything, we felt it was necessary to find a way of getting socioeconomic type of projects categorized by whether they also meet the just energy transition requirements. And I'm not saying give them preferential status, but find a way of incorporating them into the large viable projects in a way that brings institutional rigor and transparency, and in particular, good governance, so that there's no leakage. You know mm. what I mean? Uh, absolutely. Um, uh, absolutely. And, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, because often in the ESG <laughs> debate, we talk about E with a capital E, and in South Africa, a lowercase s and a lowercase g, and they all just need to be in caps. They, they need to be Correct. dealt with equally, especially given the context that we find ourselves in in South Africa as a developing country. Exactly. And so I think what we're saying is that there's a real opportunity to accelerate and scale up the just transition components related to, for want of a better term, ESG, if they are sitting side by side with the large mega projects that will have built-in viability, either because they are bankable in their own right or because they are so essential that government creates incentive mechanisms to crowd in that financing for the grid, financing for decommissioning, financing for repurposing and repowering, entering into PPAs, whether it's through ESCOM or through, at some point, municipalities, mm -hmm. because the new Energy Regulations Act uh, makes provision, actually, for municipalities to participate, potentially in private sector arrangements that sees municipalities entering into PPAs with independent power producers. On that point, Dipak, we could carry on uh, for the rest of the uh, the morning, uh, but we have to uh, end it there. We've sadly <laughs> run out of time, but I think uh, uh, a great uh, table setter for the rest of the year. And I look forward to uh, continuing to have uh, this discussion with the PCC. Hopefully we can have some other commissioners on the show uh, taking this conversation forward. Uh, there's much to still talk about uh, with the new IRP published. And, uh, and clearly that has raised uh, certain eyebrows in, in some sectors as well and then hopefully we can uh, go a little bit deeper into new energy vehicles and green hydrogen two very interesting areas of the, that three-prong approach that is being advocated by the presidential climate commission uh, to you and also to your family as well have a fantastic uh, 2024 and thanks so much for joining us on the podcast take care
Thank you very much, Michael, for this opportunity. And I think um, time flies when you're discussing huge, complex, and very interesting topics. And I look forward to continuing this conversation on the just energy transition and indeed the just transition more broadly through the course of this year. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Well, that was Dipak Patel. He is Head of Climate Finance and Innovation at the South African Presidential Climate Commission, the PCC, uh, talking uh, and and traversing wide uh, territory today, climate finance mapping, financing the just transition, and developing an overarching strategy for how we finance a pathway to a net zero emissions target for South Africa by 2050, and while leaving uh, no worker and uh, no affected stakeholder behind. Indeed, a big goal, but it needs to be tackled because uh, ultimately these things are going to uh, take over and, and get ahead of us if we don't. So I trust you uh, found it interesting on the Monocle Banking Podcast. Remember to uh, like the podcast and subscribe. We're on all good podcast platforms. We'll be back with you next week where we've got Farzam Azani. He's uh, the founder and CEO of Valar. Uh, one of the country's leading uh, crypto exchanges talking about the recent uh, ETFs uh, that have been uh, vetted by the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission in the US, and what that means for the broader adoption of cryptocurrencies. From me, Michael Avery, take care.